and welcome to Voices and Queries, the podcast from V&Q Books. V&Q Books publishes remarkable writing from Germany in English. Today I'm talking to Iris Harnika in Berlin, the author of The Bureau of Past Management, and we'll hear from the book's translator, Abigail Wender, in another episode. I'm Katie Derbyshire, the imprint's publisher. The novel's set right here in the city, but parts of it take place inside the fictitious Bureau of Past Management, where the protagonist Hans Frambach works as an archivist. We see his struggles with life in a country that once murdered millions of Jews, and his dedication to not allowing the Nazis' crimes to be forgotten. At the same time, he's critical of some ways in which remembering the atrocities has been professionalized, and also worried that he isn't feeling enough. So Ira, set the scene for us today. Where are you right now? Oh, I'm just at my desk. Nothing special. <laughs> Nothing special. Is that where you work, where you write all your books? Yes, that's the place where I write all my books and where I've spent most of my life for the past 30 or more years because I've been living in this apartment forever. Wonderful. I wish that I could say the same thing. <laughs> so the Bureau of Past Management was the sixth of your nine books so far. The German title is Das Eigentliche. It's kind of hard to translate, but it means something like the main thing or the essential thing in life. And that's what the Holocaust is for Hans, right? Yes, that's what the... Well, I, I prefer to talk of the Shoah. And that's what it is for him. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also, in a way, what it is, or what it used to be, or I cannot say, for Germany, because this is where the Federal Republic was founded, and also the GDR, and mm -hmm. which was the cause for all the, the history of the past 17, now six years. And... Um, it's the beginning of, of the story of these two countries and then now one country. And then it's also, this book is very autobiographical, even though it doesn't look like it. It doesn't. <laughs> so, and I wrote it because this crime was the essential for me for a very long time. I wrote it to get over this in a way. Yeah. 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 And you coined the term Vergangenheitsbewirtschaftung, which Abigail Wender translates as past management, so that made its way into the English title. Can you explain a little bit about that for our listeners? Yeah, for a long time, people in Germany, so in Western Germany, where I grew up in the Federal Republic, spoke of Vergangenheitsbewältigung. And maybe you can help me to translate this. Oh, <laughs> that's cruel. It's very difficult. It means something like dealing with the past, coping, perhaps to some extent getting over it. Yeah. There's a lot in there and it's impossible to translate, I'd say. Yeah, maybe this is, yeah, that's right. So when you talk about Vergangenheitsbewältigung, you, this is what politicians do. And right. what I wanted to show is that, so that especially after the... Um, what is Wiedervereinigung or unification, not re, but after unification. Right. People started, especially young people, started to, to dig much more into the past. I had the impression that it's now much yeah. more open, that people are really working on, now really working on getting over it or on finding out what that was all about. Also, there was a kind of professionalization, if you could say so. And this is why I started to call it Bewirtschaftung. They come from Bewältigung. Bewirtschaftung is not very far. 
I didn't mean it to be a mean term. I just wanted to have something factual and neutral. So, and the Wirtschaftung is management. Yeah. That's what I, I had chosen. Yeah. And it's a good translation. It is neutral. It, yeah. Uh, it's neither pro nor contra what's going on there. So you've said a little bit actually about why you wanted to write about the subject, because it's something that you couldn't shake off yourself that's fascinated yourself why why in a novel though and not not an essay for example well fascination is the wrong term mm. <laughs> it really had me in its grips um well not in an essay because um i think because in an essay i should have more of a of an opinion mm -hmm. or to come to a conclusion and i wanted to show what it does to you what it does to you to be a german who was born long time, not so long, but quite some time after the war, uh, who is still confronted with this. And this is when you are a young person and, and, and find out what actually happened and that you belong to these people. It's horrible. I, I, maybe it's because of that, that it had me in its grips for such a long time. You cannot live with that. It's, it's so horrible to think of what your ancestors did. Mm. And even though my ancestors weren't directly involved, so not in killings. So my grandfather was in the war, but otherwise nobody was involved in anything. Yeah. Even then, it's horrible. It's hard to be a German. I think <laughs> I want to, uh, to, to show. Yeah. Yes, and I'm writing novels. I wrote things that would be called essays, but I don't really think they're essays. I'm more of a novelist. Right. Um. Let's hear a short section from, from the very beginning of the book. Yes. Which just introduces us to Hans and his friend Graziella. Yes, so this is the very beginning. There comes a time when it all falls away. The anger of youth, the sorrow you felt at the world's injustice, and also the confidence that things would get better, maybe even good, if you just tried hard enough, put your whole heart into it. There comes a time when that heart empties abruptly and you eddy down into yourself, entirely alone. Not a great time. Sometimes you record how he'd always think about the trains headed to concentration and death camps whenever he was on a crowded U-Bahn. How those trains had been even more crowded than the one he was in and about the absence of any seats in those cattle cars. Graziella had described a scene from the American film The Pawnbroker, 1964, director Sidney Lumet, in which there was a leap from the quotidian into the past and had made the comparison between today's underground trains and the trains to Auschwitz. She said she couldn't get the scene out of her head. At the same time, she continued, it made her feel disgusted with herself for two reasons. For one, it was pretentious of her to compare her dignified and privileged life with those who'd been abandoned by civilization. But pretentious was the wrong word, she said. It was feeble. Impudent might be a better word or perhaps hubris would be best in this context. But it was also weak, much too weak, entirely too weak. Obscene, that was the right word. The second reason, she said, was that she had the luxury to seek the right word, the time and ease, the time and space to think, and her brain at her beck and call, which made her self-disgust even stronger. 
Back then, he thought obscene was overused and privately considered immoral a better choice. But he hadn't said anything. He just listened as she described the film's protagonist, who she said was nothing like her. The film wasn't about the granddaughter of a perpetrator, though he knew because they discussed it extensively. There were no real perpetrators in her family. There hadn't even been a Nazi party member in her family. There was only her grandfather who'd been a soldier, strictly speaking, a Mitläufer, a political hanger-on, a 22-year-old officer and troop commander in the Sixth Army. And he had only survived Stalingrad because shortly before reaching the city, after storming the Rostov airport, he had sustained a severe head injury. He'd received a so-called blighty wound, a gift as it turned out, since it meant he was flown from the war zone to a field hospital in Hungary and released from combat duty post-convalescence. After the capture of Rostov, the psychoanalyst Sabina Spielrein was murdered along with her two daughters in a mass execution. Graziela's grandfather hadn't been in an SS death squad and hadn't taken part in the shooting, but he had assisted in the capture of Rostov and hence had brought about the murder of Sabina Spielrein. They had discussed all of this, specifically how it could be endured and whether it could be born. The pawnbroker was about an entirely different character, namely Saul Naserman, a man burdened with survivor's guilt. Rod Steiger, who played Naserman, was nominated for an Oscar in 1966, as were Lawrence Olivier for Othello, Oscar Werner for Ship of Fools, Richard Burton for The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and Lee Marvin, who won Best Actor for his performance in Cat Baloo. She would never forget the scene and it played instantly before her eyes whenever she was on a crowded train. With that story, she planted the scene in him. He borrowed the pawnbroker from the university's media center and watched it once more at work on his bureau's video recorder. After that, he too felt uneasy on every crowded train. Now, as he recalled this, he noticed that the uneasiness had disappeared but he wasn't ashamed. In the past, he would have been thoroughly ashamed of himself for not being ashamed, not anymore. Now he could travel on an overcrowded train, even think about the people who had once been transported to the camps and not feel ill. Now he could see birch trees and not think birch, birke, birkenau, and he didn't believe it was because he'd become insensitive. In the past, he had feared just this lack of sensitivity and was constantly on his guard. Over and over, he scrutinized and tested himself and decided he had undertaken every possible act of remembrance. Wow, very first pages. Thank you. We'll talk to Abigail more about the translation in our next podcast episode, but I know you worked together on it to some extent. How did that feel from your perspective? Well, I was very happy to do that because this because this book is not easy to translate. <laughs> um, right. And so I was happy to work with her because thus I, I can be sure that it's really translated correctly. I don't know what 
what is in the other translations, but I'm very sure that this translation is perfect. It was interesting for me also to learn more English because I, I found out how that some mm -hmm. things you just couldn't say in English or you would say them differently and still means the same and so forth. I really liked that. And I also liked the... I also liked it to have to travel to New York to do that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it was a nice experience. Yes. Uh, is that uh, is that perhaps why so much of your most recent novel is set in New York? Yes, I spent really exactly uh, a quarter of the year 2016, 13 weeks in New York City. Yes. Wow, that must have been very intense. Oh. The Bureau of Past Management won the European Union Prize for Literature. How was it received here in Germany? Well, the reviews in Germany was, were very, very good. And the sales were not so good. <laughs> and my, <laughs> my German publisher, so the, the publisher, it's an Austrian, Austrian publisher, but my publisher said that she could have told me that before because the book before that was a love story. And she said, if love story is printed upon a book, then everybody uh, buys it. And if it's says Nazi past, nobody will buy it. Oh. And but still, still, this book is not uh, it's set in the present. And I don't think it's depressing. It's depressing in a way, but um, I've not written it to depress people. Mm. I think it's very readable. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to read such a book. This is why I've written it. Let's put it this way. Well, that's, I think, why people become <laughs> a writer, surely. Yeah. <laughs> So like a lot of your other writing, the, the book weaves in all sorts of different cultural phenomena. There's numerous books and films and music that play a role in, in Hans's life. Sometimes they're explicitly mentioned, like when Hans takes out everything he can find about Shanghai from the library to prepare for a trip there. And sometimes it's, it's more subtle in allusions and quotes from people like T.S. Eliot, Bertolt Brecht, Paul Celan. And it makes for pretty exciting reading. It makes the book feel quite choppy and restless, much like its protagonists. Can I imagine you as a kind of a magpie picking up treasures here and there to work into your writing? Oh, magpie is nice. You can imagine me as somebody with a very, very good memory. Oh. So I don't forget things easily. And um, I know in the beginning of my writing life so in the very beginning i sometimes hear sentence structures from other people and then i thought people would find out that i just plagiarized it but of course they don't but i just i just re remember things and don't forget things very easily that's yes more of an elephant very easily it's the wrong it's the wrong i have and i have an elephant's memory rather than a, yes. a bird brain probably better that way yes not a bird brain yeah. <laughs> Just don't call me magpie, don't call me an elephant. Okay. <laughs> a human being, yes. Um, so I'm looking a bit more internationally. We often see Germany held up as a kind of a shining example of a country that's faced up to its crimes and, and tried to make amends. Susan Nyman, for example, called her book about the memory of evil, Learning from the Germans. And compared to the UK, I would say she does have a point. There are a lot of things Britain could learn about trying to confront past crimes from, from Germany. But I do know a lot of Germans are sceptical about that. I think they feel it's impossible to do enough. But Iris, how would your protagonist Hans see it? Can we learn from the Germans? Well, 
the thing that the Germans did so much to bring their history out into the open is because they could not hide it because Germany was written all over these crimes. You, there's no way to, to, to yeah. make that disappear. And there are other countries who helped like the French or who profited like uh, the Swiss and did not work on their history or try to find out so much about the history because they say we are French, you don't, it's, it's a German crime and so forth. So I think the Germans were forced into that, but that's a good thing in a way. And, and, I, and I also wrote that in the book that in Germany, it's not hidden anymore. It's really out in the open. And I know for, for a time, you turned on uh, the TV set, um, the telly, then um, you would see on every channel there was something about, about Nazis, about this story, either discussion or a movie or a documentary. And that was a lot. And Hans, well, Hans is trapped in a way. And on, on the one hand, he, he thinks that this is okay. It's okay to do it because he can't think of anything else. At the same time, he starts to think that maybe he personally in his private life should sometimes think of something else and not spend all his days, not only his days, but and all his nights and all his time uh, with thinking about what had happened then. So speaking for Hans, I don't know, speaking for Germans in general, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> In your in your most recent novel, Eshel's Kaman, which uh, recently won a big big prize, you write about another character who who often feels guilt about the Shoah, although that's for her that's not the main thing. Yeah, my conclusion is that writing about Hans and Graziella didn't cure you, didn't remove that burden from your shoulders. Oh no, no, it did. No, it did. I, it removed that burden from me. It is just that the, one of the protagonists of the new novel mm -hmm. is a poet. So this is the first time I wrote about I had women protagonists, and I also at least one of them is pretty. You could say it's pretty close to my own uh, biography, in a way, or to what I'm doing, which was an interesting experience for me. But the beginning of that novel is set in New York, and when you come to New York as a German one of the things that hit you is that they are living Jews. That Jews are not only, because in Germany you hear about Jews always being murdered or dead. And in New York, you meet normal people, <laughs> just living normal people who happen to be Jews. And that's, that's an experience which I don't have now because um, I'm older now, but when you come there for the first time as a young person, it's, um, well, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's something you have to, to think about and, and so forth. And, um, and it's just that, uh, that this protagonist meets a young man who is Jewish and who has, who looks and who looks Jewish too. So, and that's, and then she thinks, can I, just say that that's that he's looking good or not. Uh, am I being anti-Jewish or something? So it, it's it, she cannot just say this guy is looking good. She has to to play it over. How do you say? In, to to think twice about mm. it. What what this means if she says somebody who's looking Jewish is also looking good. So this is just a reference to her being German. Mm. I would say that. And I, I think I, I just mentioned it in this book because you have to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's all.
yeah. makes sense yeah good yeah i would say from my experience that certainly in berlin nowadays germans have more opportunities to meet living jews rather than learning about dead ones um yes. be they from from elsewhere or, or or german jews let me finish off with one last question iris the book was written more, more than 10 years ago if you were writing the bureau of past management nowadays how do you think it would have changed with a new generation of young people coming up through education in germany Uh, well, I think maybe I wouldn't write it at all. Oh. Uh, I think even when I wrote it, I sometimes felt like a fossil because the younger generation, as you said, is has another relationship with our history because they learn very much in school. Right from being little school kids they, in second grade, they learn how to how you get to Sobibor in a way. And uh, which I don't think is a good thing. But anyway, they, they right from the beginning of their school years, they learn about it. And I was born in 62 and I was in school in the 70s in Bavaria. And uh, it's not that they it was hidden from us, but we didn't learn so extensively about all these crimes. And I think it's a thing about my generation. I, was, I have a friend who's 10 years younger who also had this relationship with our history that she always thought about and that she couldn't take people seriously who would not show with everything they said or did that they knew about what had happened. So this is it's very, very harsh. But younger people just think it's something you learn about in schools. And uh, I think they live with that more than my generation does. And mm. thus, um, There wouldn't be characters like Hans who are now 30 years old, I think. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Iris, for this great conversation. Thank you, Katie, for everything. I hope we'll meet in person sometime soon again. That would be nice. We will. Very soon. Yeah. I have to say this book is a challenging but rewarding read. And I know it's had a really profound effect on me. So please do... Seek out the Bureau of Past Management and see what you think or if it changes how you think. You can find VNQ Books via your local independent bookseller and via our website vq-books.eu where you can also find other episodes of the Voices and Queries podcast discussing other wonderful German books in translation. Look us up at your favourite purveyor of podcasts and check us out on social media. Our handle is vqbooks because you can't do an ampersand on social media. Thank you again to Iris Harnika for today's conversation, to our wonderful podcast producer Susan Stone and to Andy Sire for our theme tune. In our next episode, we'll speak with translator Abigail Wender about her work on the Bureau of Past Management. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Derbyshire. Bis dann. This podcast was co-funded by the European Union's Creative Europe programme.